Would you pray with me? God, you are so gracious to us. You are so kind to us. Because even though you are high and holy, in Christ you have condescended to us to show us mercy that we did not deserve. Not only eternal mercy, but even temporary physical mercies. In Christ, you love to feed hungry people, and so this morning, your people are hungry here. They need bread from your word. So Christ, feed them. Feed your people this morning. Be glorified in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Turn to John 6. In your Bibles, John chapter 6. So far, we've been looking at the Gospel of John for several weeks now. Uh, That's the series we've been in. We've been looking at the signs that John has been telling us about in the ministry of Jesus. We said that in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that John wants to show us that Jesus has done miracles that he's performed. And so we're going to look at one of those this morning. We've seen a few of them already, and we'll talk about those, but uh, this morning we're going to see yet another. So we'll be in John chapter 6, and we'll start reading in verse 1. John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but... What are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's a very popular passage even among unbelievers, people that may not know the Bible all that well. Many people know of the feeding of the 5,000. That's a very, very popular among Jesus' miracles. The reason for that could be that it's one of the only events that's recorded in all four gospel accounts, which is interesting. In fact, it's the only miracle from the life of Jesus that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. There are things like the triumphal entry and the, the resurrection, things like that that are recorded in all four, but This is the only miracle from Jesus' life and ministry that's recorded in all four Gospels. Which is interesting because it's recorded in this Gospel, John's Gospel, which is frequently unique from the other three. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call those Gospels because they're stories of the good news, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But the Gospel writers sometimes tell the same accounts a little bit differently. They'll, give a, they'll each give a different perspective on these accounts. And so John gives us a very unique perspective on this miracle specifically. So we've seen this in Matthew, we've seen this in Mark, we've seen this in Luke. Now what John gives us in this miracle, he gives us information that the other gospel writers haven't. Uh, a couple things that are unique to John's gospel. So only John mentions these. First of all, only in John does this miracle come after the the conversation, the conflict with the Jewish leaders? So we looked at that a few weeks ago in John chapter five. Alex preached that. 
We're also told only in John that the crowd is only following Jesus because they saw the signs. That's a detail that only John gives us. Only John brings up the Passover. None of the other gospel writers mention the Passover. But here John says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. It's just kind of plugged in there. We don't know why. Also, John uniquely has Jesus bringing up the problem of feeding the people. Which is interesting because in the other accounts, the disciples come to Jesus and say, look at all these people, how are they going to eat? But only in John is the, is the account that Jesus brings it up and says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? John is the only one that mentions Jesus testing Philip. He says, no, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. John's the only one that mentions that. Here's one. John is the only account that mentions the boy. Which is interesting because growing up and hearing this passage preached, that's where everyone seemed to go. Maybe it's because I was a teenager at the time and you know, they want to draw those connections, which is great. But John is the only one that mentions the boy, which is interesting. Only John has the people recognizing that Jesus is the prophet that was to come into the world. That's a detail that's unique to John. And only John has the people trying to make him king just after this happened. So, a couple things should really, really uniquely draw our attention to this text. First of all, we assume that John has seen the other three Gospels. We believe that John was the last Gospel account written. So we assume that John has seen Matthew, seen Mark, seen Luke, and yet has chosen to include this miracle only that all three of the other Gospel writers have already dealt with. And even if he hasn't seen the synoptics, the other three Gospels, it's still important because the Holy Spirit that inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to include this in their gospel also sovereignly decided to inspire John to include it in his gospel account. So we should be drawn to this and we should be drawn to these unique features that John brings up. So the fact that John even mentions this is key, but then the fact that John gives us so many pieces that the other gospel writers haven't should also say, make us say, hmm, what's here? What's he trying to get at here? Um, so I have four observations to make from this text. Nothing really clever or novel. I don't think we should really try to be clever and novel when we come to the scriptures. Just four basic observations that I think are clearly given to us in this text. First of all, we'll look at the motivation of the crowd. Second, we'll look at the response of Jesus. Third, we'll examine the miracle itself, the actual miracle. And fourth and finally, we'll look at the crowd's misunderstanding at the end of the passage. So first of all, the motivation of the crowd. Look at verse two. Verse two. It says, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So it gives us the motivation of the crowd. John tells us why the crowds are following Jesus. And he says, it's because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, signs is an important word in the Gospel of John. And we've talked about that a few times, how John is giving us seven signs in his Gospel that are intended to make us believe in Jesus as the Christ. So the, the word sign, and anytime we see signs happening in John's Gospel, we need to be extra attentive. The ones we've seen so far, in John 2 was Jesus' first sign, and John clearly tells us this was the first of his signs. Uh, in John 2, he changed the water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana. In John 4, he healed the royal official's son in Capernaum. That was the one where the royal official comes, his son is sick, even to death, far away, uh, but Jesus doesn't have to travel there, just speaks the word, and the son is healed at that very moment. In John 5, Jesus heals the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day, and that's where we've just come from. That starts the, the controversy with the Jewish leaders about him healing on the Sabbath, and even the nature of the signs is brought up there. So those are the three that we've seen so far. So here we are now at the fourth of John's seven signs, the feeding of the 5,000. I wanna pause here and ask, what is the purpose of the signs? So if the people are following Jesus because they saw the signs, sounds like a good thing. Right? I mean, there's signs, and people are following him because of the signs, so that seems like it would be consistent with Jesus' mission. So what is the purpose of the signs? Keep your finger there in John 6, but flip over a couple passages to John 2. A couple pages over to John 2. 
So again, I said in John 2, we're seeing Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana. He's turning the water into wine. I just want us to notice one specific phrase that's used here. John John chapter 2. And we'll go a little bit towards the end of the story of the wedding feast. And we'll start in verse... We'll start in verse 10. So this is kind of the response of the people to this miracle. They said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the people are pleased with the sign that he's done. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I think that gives us, a, and you can turn back to John 6, I think that gives us a very clear picture of what Jesus is trying to do with these signs. He's manifesting his glory for the purpose of belief. He wants people to believe in him, so he does these signs that show, clearly show, his glory. You're in John 6. You may have to flip back a page, you may not, but look at the very end of John chapter 5. At the very end of John chapter 5, still talking about the purpose of the signs. Look at verse 36. This is Jesus talking just after he's done the, the sign where he's healed the paralytic. John 5, 36. Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. I think we see another purpose of the signs there. Jesus says, the reason I'm doing these works that I'm doing is because the Father through them is bearing witness that I am sent from heaven. I'm sent from the Father. So that's consistent with what we've seen. Jesus wants people to believe in him. Therefore, he manifests his divine glory through the workings of these powerful signs. And that's consistent with John's purpose in the Gospel of John. That's why John's Gospel is the one that includes these signs. What's the purpose of John's Gospel? We saw it at the beginning of the series. He clearly says it towards the end of the Gospel. I have written these things, John says, so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. So you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us clearly, that's why I'm writing. I want people to believe in Jesus Christ. So what means does he employ to to bring that about? He says, okay, well, I will show them the glory of Jesus Christ through the signs that he's done. And he includes seven of them here. So that's the purpose of the signs. He wants people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to have life through believing in his name. That's why John's writing That's why John's including the signs. That's why Jesus does the signs to manifest his glory so that people will believe in him. So let's compare the motivation of the crowd to that. If the reason that Jesus is doing the signs is because he wants people to believe in him and receive him as the Christ sent from God, and it says the crowds followed him because of the signs, it would seem like they're believing that he's the Christ sent from God. But what we're going to see is that's not actually how they respond. And we'll see this worked out a little bit later, but we get a little clue of it right now in verse 2. It says, the reason they followed him was because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They follow him around, and this may sound like an assumption right now, and that's fair, but we're going to see this worked out towards the end of this passage. The crowds follow him around because they want to see him do stuff merely because they saw the signs, not because they loved him or received him or believed in him. Uh, Commentator Matthew Henry, a Puritan, I love Matthew Henry's commentaries, Um, he says of this passage, and please get this, Christ's miracles drew many after him that were not effectually drawn to him. You get that distinction? Christ's miracles drew many after him, they followed him around, drew many after him that were not effectually drawn to him. The people had their curiosity gratified by the strangeness of these miracles 
who had not their consciences, consciences convinced by the power of them. Let me say that one more time. Christ's miracles drew many after him that were not effectually drawn to him. They had their curiosity gratified by the strangeness of them who had not their consciences convinced by the power of them. And again, we're going to see that worked out in the passage. The people are not coming after Christ because they want to receive him as their Lord or because they even recognize that he's the Christ. They're following him because they want to see him do stuff. They want their curiosity gratified. And this happens today. At Emmanuel Church, we we stand firmly against what's known as uh, the prosperity gospel. Uh, By believing that you can come and Jesus is just going to do stuff for you or do things that are marvelous and just look cool. And therefore, you're a follower of Jesus because you show up whenever he's doing stuff. There's so much more to it than that. And that's what we're going to see throughout this passage is these people must receive Jesus as their Christ as the one sent from God to atone for their sins. And we're gonna see here, worked out, that they miss that. So the motivation of the crowd falls utterly short. They're merely following him because of the signs. So, given that, secondly, what's Jesus' response? So we would think that this short-sighted, self-centered, merely curious crowd follows after Jesus, we might think, well, Jesus is going to have no time for these people. Jesus ain't having that. You will have him as Lord or you will not have him at all. And there's truth to that, but let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse five in John chapter six. Verse five. Lifting up his eyes, Jesus here, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus said this to test Philip, for Jesus knew what Jesus would do. Two things to note here about Christ's response. The first one, uh, simply the compassion of it, I think is notable. We've just seen, and we're going to continue to see, these people are missing the ministry of Jesus. But yet Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus seeks to feed them. And this is particularly evident when we compare John's account to the other gospel writers. So, you don't have to turn there. Let me read to you from Matthew's account. Okay, so we just heard Jesus and John say, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Listen to how Matthew tells this account. This is the disciples' idea when they see these people coming towards them. Quote from the disciples. This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Do you see that contrast? The disciples say, This is a desolate place, the day is spent. Send them away so that they can buy food for themselves. Contrast that with Jesus' tenderness in John's account. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Not tell them to go away so they can get their own food. Jesus says, where shall we purchase their food? You see how tender Jesus is there? This is the man of sorrows. You know, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. They don't have 200 denarii in the money purse, which greedy Judas is holding when Jesus said, th- said this. And Jesus says, you know, we have no place to sleep, we're, you know, but where are we gonna buy food for these people? Jesus offers to pick up the tab for 5,000 plus people. When the disciples' idea was to just send them away because Jesus is tender-hearted even towards physical needs. Jesus is compassionate. He seeks to give of himself. He has infinite resources. He's God. But as incarnate man, he doesn't even have a place to sleep. And yet he says, where will we buy bread for these people? Little detail. Mark's account plainly confirms this, though. Mark says, in Mark 6, he says, Jesus saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them. 
Mark clearly tells us Jesus is compassionate towards these people, even though they're just following him like they would follow a, a sideshow. He's still compassionate towards them. And we'll see in a few minutes that he wants to give them much more than full bellies, but he certainly does not want to give them less. And again, we, we do not believe that the Christian life is primarily about having your physical needs consistently and immediately met by Jesus. We don't believe that. There's biblical evidence that says sometimes God will subject us to hardships for the purpose of our joy. So we, we don't believe that God's always gonna be putting you know, money in the coffers and bread in the stomach, but at the same time, the Bible does clearly tell us that Jesus is compassionate and Jesus delights to meet your physical needs delights in it. Even for those who don't conceive of him correctly, he delights to be tender towards them, to be kind to them. And the same is true today. But it's interesting that not only is Jesus' response marked by compassion, but there's also an element of examination to it. So, again, look back at, look back at the text. Look at verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus asks this tender, compassionate question but John gives this commentary that I find really interesting. It says he said this to test him which seems inconsistent is Jesus being tender and compassionate or is he being calculating about what Philip's gonna think? And the, the word John uses here, and listen, I've had one semester of online elementary Greek, so no Greek scholar here, okay? Uh, but there is a simple observation that we can make here that I think, you know, you don't have to know Greek to really understand why this is important. The word used for test there, and the reason I bring up Greek because the whole New Testament was originally written in Greek. So we have an English translation of the Greek original. And the word that John, the author, used in Greek uh, for test there, perazo, huh? <laughs> John, this author, he wrote a few books in the New Testament. We've got the Gospel of John that we're looking at right now. He wrote three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And then he wrote one more book, Revelation, the last one. John does not use that word anywhere else in his Gospel. He doesn't use it in any of his epistles. He does, however, use it a couple times in Revelation, three to be exact. And they're very telling, I think, they all come in the first couple chapters of Revelation, which is before you get to the dragons and things like that. It's in the letters to the churches. The first time, and you don't have to turn to any of these places, the first time John uses this word in Revelation chapter two. So it's the letter to the church at Ephesus. And he uses it in this context. The church is testing people that call themselves apostles in their midst. And they find them to be False. Okay, so that's the first one. The, the church is testing these so-called apostles and finding them to be false. Second, also in Revelation 2, talking about the church at Smyrna, the devil is testing, same Greek word, the church at Smyrna by having their people thrown into prison. So the devil is submitting the church at Smyrna to these, these hardships in order to test them. And then in Revelation 3 is the last one, where Jesus is testing the earth at his return. So that's what Jesus is doing to Philip in this passage. Again, warm, tender, kind, gentle Jesus simultaneously is calculating, pressuring, testing, proving Philip. Which seems to me at first glance to be kind of insincere. Jesus is like, oh, where are we gonna buy bread? They need to eat. Philip, you know, there's this element of, you know, he's just looking at Philip, but, you know, is he, does he care about the crowds or is this just a ploy to get at Philip? 
Uh, but it's not ingenuous and it's not insincere. Jesus is simultaneously, deeply and sincerely concerned for the physical well-being of these crowds and concerned with the faith and holiness of his follower, Philip. And there's no contradiction there in Jesus' motives. He is, and, and we may find this tricky, but we're not the son of God. He is, in that sense, he is tender and gentle and compassionate and simultaneously at the same moment in the same words, okay, Philip, how are you gonna respond? What are you gonna say to this, Philip? And Jesus still works like this today. He's tender toward our needs and in those needs and in his meeting of those needs, he's looking out for our holiness and our faith And he's continually testing us by those needs, even as he himself meets them. He's complex, and he's complex for our joy. So he's simultaneously doing these things. This is why we can sing songs like, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Why would you be subjecting me to this need, Jesus? Or, Or Jesus, thank you for meeting my needs. He's not merely meeting needs. Yes, he's going to fill the belly. But again, he's not just going to fill the belly. He's going to prove the soul as well. He's going to try faith as well. So, how does Philip respond? Jesus is testing him. Does Philip give the right answer or does Philip give the wrong answer? Well, let's look at the passage. He says in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Wrong answer. Jesus is testing Philip's faith. He wants Philip to trust him. And where does Philip go? Ordinary means. Here's a problem, Philip. What are we going to do? We're looking at the change purse over here and it's not cutting it, Jesus. Wrong answer. What would the right answer have been? Think about it. What does Jesus want Philip to say? Where are we to get bread so that these people may eat? Well, Lord, certainly you can feed them. Lord, if you will, surely you could furnish a table for these people in the wilderness. Where are we to get bread so that these people may eat? Lord, if you will, you could feed them all. I think these are the kinds of responses Jesus is looking for from Philip there. Simple faith. Philip, we've got a problem here. What are we gonna do about it? Lord, haven't you seen the things you've done? Feed them. I think those are the kinds of answers that delight the heart of Christ. Not, not merely looking to ordinary means. 200 denarii. Yeesh. No, looking to Christ in faith that he can provide if he, cho- if he so chooses. But instead, Philip looks to ordinary means to help and he seems to lose heart when they come up short. So we've seen the motivation of the crowd. We've seen Jesus' response and his engagement with Philip there. Third, the actual miracle. So ironically, we won't spend a lot of time with the miracle itself Uh, but I do want to emphasize what I believe John emphasizes here. And I believe what John makes clear here is the magnitude of the miracle that happens. I think what he wants us to get, what he makes a big deal of when he's writing is just how grand scale this miracle really is. And really, we see this with all of the signs that John records. So again, we've seen a couple signs already. We're looking at this one this week. And then in the future, we're going to see a couple more. I want to run through those really quickly, and I just want you to see if you detect a pattern here in what's emphasized about each of these signs. First, the wedding feast at Cana. So Jesus turns the water into wine. What's emphasized there? The large quantity of water and the high quality of the wine. So, I mean, big just jars, filling them up, filling them up over and over and over again of water, and then... This is good wine. The the high quality of the wine that was served. How about the royal official son? What's emphasized? He is really far away. 
And the royal official says, you know, my son, I've traveled a distance, he's far away. And how does Jesus surmount that obstacle? A word. So he's really far away. Jesus heals with a word at that moment. So the official got home and realized, what well, the moment he said it was the moment he got better. Wow. Next, the paralytic. How long has he been paralyzed? Nearly four decades the man's been paralyzed undone in a moment. Four decades. It's not like he fell and hurt his leg and Jesus just fixed it right there. No, the man's been paralyzed for 40 years and it's undone in a moment. We have this one, which we'll come back to in a second. Just after this, and we actually talked about this last week, Jesus walks on water, but not just any water. It wasn't a glassy day on the lake, it was a tempest. A great storm that made even seasoned fishermen scared for their lives, and Jesus just strolls across it. The blind man healed. How long has he been blind? From birth. I mean, born blind. He's never seen a day in his life. How are you going to undo this one, Jesus? Give me a couple seconds. And then Lazarus is the final one. What do they say when he's get there? Lord, he's been dead for four days. Why do you want us to move the stone? And what does Jesus say? Martha, if you would believe in me, you know, I am the resurrection and the life, trust me. So in each of these, we see this level of magnitude that's just totally insurmountable. It takes it out of the, the, the realm of cheap parlor tricks or sleight of hand, and it puts it in a, in a realm totally its own. The things that Jesus is doing here are not just impossible. I mean, they're really impossible. But let me, let me ask you a question. Do you think any of these things was hard for Jesus? Think about that. Did he have to exert any mental effort? I mean, was there ever a moment where Jesus was like, no. I mean, again, John, is, John has put such a magnitude on these signs that he's put them totally out of the realm of possibility, and they're not even hard. It's a word. You know, be healed, rise up and walk, and it's just you know, four decades of paralyzation is undone. And I think that's what John is emphasizing here. These are large, insurmountable obstacles that Jesus scales in a second. And he's gonna do the same thing here. You don't have to look at these verses, but um, in this passage, I'll just quote a few different places. On the front side of the miracle, John really highlights how big of a problem this is. Quote, it's a large crowd. Now think, this isn't 20 people, which would be tough enough if you got five loaves of bread. Boy, we're really gonna have to work some magic to spread this out here. It's not 100 people. It's not 500 people. Probably not even 5,000 people. It's 5,000 men. Who knows how many people are actually there? So it's a large crowd. And then another thing, eight months' wages, which is 200 denarii, eight months' wages is not enough for each person to even get a bite. That's what the man says. He says 200 denarii would not even be enough for each person to get a little. So again, highlighting the magnitude of the problem here. Then note the, the small means that Jesus has at his disposal. You got five barley loaves, which actually is the bread of the poorer classes in that time. Only John includes the fact that they were barley loaves. Interesting. Five barley loaves, two pieces of fish. Those are the minuscule means that he has to work with here for 5,000 plus people out there. So John really does a good job at highlighting what the problem is here. But then, listen to the language that John uses as the miracles actually performed. The people ate, quote, as much as they wanted. Quote, when they had eaten their fill. Quote, filled 12 baskets with leftovers from the five barley loaves. And it's interesting, like, with the other miracles, you kind of see it happen. You know, Jesus says, rise up and walk, and you know, he gets up and walks. With this one, you kind of miss it. It just kind of happens. It's like, well, you know, there were a lot of people, five loaves of bread, 
something happened. Now there's 12 baskets. You know, did it? I don't, we don't know how it happened, but it just happened. So John's not really even emphasizing the miracle itself. He's just saying huge odds to overcome, little means at his disposal, enormous output and overflow. 5,000 plus people, five loaves, two fishes, they're not even good loaves at that, 12 baskets left over. So he's got more left over at the end than what he had when he started. After he's fed 5,000 plus people to the point that they're full. So we see here this consistent theme through John that he's trying to say, listen, the bigness of the problem doesn't matter. It's Jesus. It's not hard for him. It's a word. He just passes out the bread and it happens. It's not like he's even putting forth a lot of effort into doing this. Be healed. Rise up and walk. Lazarus, come forth. Just pass out the bread. So again, John's highlighting just the large nature of the problem, the small means that he has at his disposal, and then the huge solution that Jesus gives to the problem. So I mean, with all of this, surely now the crowds get it. I mean, how could they miss it now? They've seen with their own eyes, you know, just 5,000 people, all he had was that, and we're all full? Certainly this man must be the Christ. But uh, finally, we'll look at the misunderstanding of the crowd, and then I'll just make a couple applications and we'll be done. Number four, the misunderstanding. Look at verses 14 and 15, 14 and 15 in John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now this one, at first glance, in my opinion, can be a little bit confusing. Because, okay, I get it. You know, he's not supposed to be king right now. Okay, that comes later. So they got their timing wrong there. But I mean, he is the prophet that's to come into the world. You know, they're making reference to, to Moses there. In Deuteronomy, Moses said to the people before they're about to enter into the promised land and he's going to stay behind, he says, listen, there's going to be another prophet like me that will come. So throughout, you know, the people of Israel are looking for this prophet that, like Moses that is to come, the prophet. Note it. It's probably capitalized in your, your translation, the prophet. So they're not just saying he's a prophet. They're saying this is the one like Moses that's to come. Now, is Jesus the prophet like Moses that was to come? Yeah. So, I mean, again, a little confusing here because it seems, you know, isn't this a win for Jesus? Right? I mean, okay, good. They came after me because they just saw the signs, but now they get it. I'm the prophet like Moses. Not necessarily. A couple things to consider here. First of all, Jesus is typically, typically referred to as a prophet or the prophet by people who don't quite understand him or his ministry. So in the Gospels, when people refer to him as a prophet or the prophet, they're typically people that don't really understand why he came. A couple of examples. Uh, You don't have to turn to these, but I'm gonna pull all of them just from John. John 1, the, the people are questioning John the Baptist. They say, who are you? They ask first, are you the prophet? Same thing, capitalized, the prophet. Not just, are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? What does John say? No. They say, are you Elijah? No. Are you the Christ? No. Now, it's interesting. It seems that there's a distinction in their minds between being the prophet and the Christ. So in their minds, they're not thinking, okay, he's the prophet. This is the Messiah. Great. This is the one sent from God for, oh, yes. No, in their minds, there's the prophet. And over there, there's the Christ. And that may seem to be reading too much into things, uh, but I think we see this confirmed um, in John 7. Uh, People are questioning Jesus this time. Not John the Baptist, but Jesus. Uh, They're coming to different conclusions about who he is. Quote from John 7, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. 
Others said, this is the Christ. So there was a division among the people over him. So there is a definite, firm disconnect in these people's minds between being the prophet and being Christ, anointed one from God, come to atone for our sins. Those are not necessarily connected in their minds. And then another instance would be John 4, the one at the well. What does she say? Ah, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she just calls him a prophet, not the prophet, but she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then a few seconds later, she says, well, when Messiah comes, he'll, he'll sort all this out for us about where we're supposed to worship. And he has to tell her, woman, I say to you that the man to whom you're speaking, I am the, I'm he, I'm the Messiah. So again, just because people perceive him as a prophet or even the prophet does not mean that they have recognized him as their Christ. And what John tells us next makes it clear that they have indeed missed it. They've recognized him as the prophet, but they have not received him as their Christ. And that's shown by the fact that they're going to try to immediately make him king. So they're going to take him and try to make him king, put him on the throne. And this just proves our suspicion that they have not understood him. They're in the same situation as Philip. They have ordinary earthly concerns and they merely want Jesus to meet those ordinary earthly concerns. We're sick of Rome. Fix it, Jesus. Yes, good. Make him king. He'll, now, we can, now we have one of our own sitting on the throne. Okay, this is great. He's going to deliver us from Roman oppression. So they want him only insofar as he gives them what they want right then. They have no interest in receiving him as their Lord. They should have come to him as their bread. They should have sought to have him as their Lord, as their Christ, having seen the signs that manifested his glory. But Jesus will tell us even later in the chapter that the reason they're seeking him is, quote, not because they saw the signs, but because they ate their fill of the loaves. So even in Jesus' mind, there's a distinction between seeing the signs, really seeing them and understanding what they're for, and just because you ate your fill of the loaves. So instead of using him for bread, they should have received him as bread. So instead of just using Jesus and following, around, following him around just to get what they want right then, they should have received him. Yes, eat the bread for your stomachs, but also receive the bread for your soul. And that's how they missed it. So a total misunderstanding on the part of the crowd here. One more aspect to consider, and I don't want to make too much of this because I don't think it's clear that this is what John is intending to communicate, but another way we can kind of look at this, we speak of the three main offices of Christ as being prophet, priest, king. Now, it's clear that they recognize that he's the prophet, or a prophet at least, some sort of divine empowerment. They clearly want him as their king to throw off Roman oppression, but it seems they never considered that he was there to be their priest, to make offering for their sin. It seems like that never entered their minds. Consider, each of those 5,000 plus people that ate bread from the hands of Jesus that day was, by nature and by choice, a sinner. Needing offering for their sin, needing a savior, a substitute. And it seems they had no idea that the one who fed them so compassionately on that afternoon would one day righteously judge them for their sins. Seems that never entered their minds. But that very day, he's on his way to take the judgment for their sin. That's where he's, that's where he's going. That's, that's what his ministry is about. That's where he's headed. But that's not even on their radar. They see that he can do cool stuff, and so they try to follow him around. Again, I, I don't want to read too much into that because I don't know if that's clearly what John's trying to say, um, but it is interesting. They only want Jesus insofar as he gives them what they want at that time. I just want to make three quick applications and then we'll be done. So, so what? We've seen all this that the passage says. What do I get from this? First of all, be comforted. 
take comfort from this passage because Christ delights to provide for your physical needs. He is tender, he is compassionate, he is kind. And he delights to give you bread. Christ was compassionate for hungry people. And why should he not be? Because he himself has felt hunger. God, omnipotent Jesus, in his incarnation identifies with us to the point that he has felt tiredness. He knows what it's like to be really tired. He knows what it's like to be really, really hungry. And that gives him a unique ability to identify with hungry people. Also, not only in his incarnation, but in his union with his saints. So we who believe, we believe that we are united to Christ. And Christ takes that very seriously. Even to the point where he says, if you give your brother a cup of cold water, I count it as a deed done to me. There's a mystical union between Christ and his people such that even when Saul is on the Damascus road, he sees Jesus, and what does Jesus say? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Has Saul ever persecuted Jesus? No. Who has he been persecuting? Christ's people. And Christ counts that as persecution to himself. Christ uniquely identifies with your pain, with your tiredness, with your hunger, with your stress, because he is, he's come in such a way that he has felt the thing, those things himself, but also he maintains a union with us that he really feels our pain and hunger and tiredness now. And he counts harm against us as harm to himself. So be comforted, take comfort from that. We'll see in coming weeks the most ultimate sense in which Christ provides bread. He goes on for the rest of chapter six into the bread of life discourse where he'll make it clear that he's not there just to give bread, he's there to be bread. He offers himself as eternal bread for your hungry souls. But he also provides daily bread for our hungry stomachs. So eternal bread, and he is that, but he also gives us daily bread. And he even tells us to ask him for daily bread because he delights in giving it. In fact, he says, I, I know what you have need of before you even ask me. And he delights to give it to us, so be comforted. Number two, to believers, look to Christ in faith. At the very beginning of this series, Alex said, opening the series up, quote, this series will be wasted if faith in Christ is not stirred up. And John flat out tells us, I want you to believe. And then he fills his gospel account with these signs. Why? Because they're meant to push us towards Christ in faith. So John wants believers to believe in Christ, not to make the same mistake that Philip made. He doesn't want us merely assessing problems with ordinary means. He wants us to go to Christ whenever we're confronted with a little inconvenience or with a life and death threatening situation to go to Christ and say, Jesus, surely you can, you can provide here. Jesus, certainly, I've seen in your word where you fed 5,000 people with five loaves. Surely, you can provide for this situation. If you will, you can, you can feed them all to, to the point that they're filled up. So that's what John wants. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for us. It's what Jesus himself wants. Don't make the same mistake that Philip made. Do not always look only to ordinary earthly means. Point the two eyes of your heart towards Christ in faith. And our natural inclination is not to go there. Our natural inclination is to be consumed with ordinary problems and the ordinary means to fixing them and then to lose heart when those ordinary means fail. That is not what Jesus would have us do. He would have us go to him first and most to say, Jesus, certainly you can provide here. You've done greater things. And then finally, unbelievers in the room, those who do not know Christ, 
Believers shouldn't make the same mistake that Philip made and unbelievers don't miss Christ as the crowds did. Scary thought here. Even partially correct ideas about Jesus are insufficient. Get that. Even partially correct ideas about Jesus and who he is and what he's here to do are insufficient. Jesus will be had. He will be received, trusted on, relied upon, believed in, believed on. These are the words that he uses. He says, I'm like bread, take me. Receive me to yourself. He must be taken hold of. And that's what these people miss. They miss the gospel. And that's what we believe here at Emmanuel Church. We believe that God made man good in his image, in perfect harmony and peace and shalom, and that man committed cosmic treason against his creator. And that now, even today, we continue that in happy rebellion against God, doing what we want to do instead of what he would have us do. So, we must die, because God is a good judge and he's a just judge, he will punish sin. He won't just say, you're guilty, but ah, get out of here. No, he will punish every sin fully and righteously, which creates a problem. That's why Jesus came, to solve that problem. There's, there's wrath and enmity between God and man, naturally, and Jesus came to fix that, to reconcile God and man. So what does he do? He goes to the cross. He dies the death that we deserved. We merited that death by our sin. And he absorbs all of God's wrath. Every ounce of God's wrath is poured out on Christ so that once he raises from the dead, he bids people to come to him, receive him, take him, and have life. That's what the crowds missed. So unbelievers in the room, come to him. Trust him. He bids you to come. He wants to feed you, not just with bread from a table, but with eternal bread. He is bread. So receive him as the bread that you most deeply need. He saves us from God's wrath and he satisfies us forever. So John shows us a miracle here, a sign. The Holy Spirit includes a miracle here, a sign. And clearly the reason that he does so, the Holy Spirit and John, is because you are to have faith in Christ. So unbelievers, have faith in Christ. Turn from sin, turn to Christ. Believers, have faith in Christ. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your tenderness, your gentleness, your kindness to us. But thank you also that you always have an eye towards our faith. You want us to believe in you, to trust you. So Jesus, please, this morning, create that which pleases yourself in the hearts of your people. Create faith. If there are unbelievers in this room, perform the miracle. Say, let there be life. Let there be faith. We love you so much. We thank you for providing for us. May we continue to bring our requests to you because you delight to resolve them for us. In Jesus' name, amen.